0: Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street.
1: Five, four, three, two, one.
0: From inside the Masson Newsroom, it is. The Masson All-Access Podcast, Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortenson here with you as always. Brendan, how you doing? Wonderful. It, a lot of
1: good Orioles news comes out at a random time on a Wednesday night.
0: I think that MLB Pipeline, we're talking of course about the new prospect rankings that came out last night, which we will get into in more depth in just a bit, but I think that they looked at the Orioles score, they looked at the losing streak and said, Orioles fans need this right yeah. now more than ever. We're going to push up the, the release date because...
1: What else would the explanation be for dropping the new top 100 prospect list at, at like, 10.30?
0: 10.26 on a, on a Wednesday night? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, strange. You would think they would want to make, you know, like, a bigger deal out of it. Or maybe to... they just underestimate the amount of baseball
1: nerds that really like the, the top 100 sickos. prospect. Yeah, that yeah.
0: really... Uh, you know get into it we're going to talk about that in a little bit we're also going to talk about our recent trip to uh salisbury maryland to see the delmarva shorebirds in action and then we're going to take a macro perspective on the orioles rebuild and talk about primer for the offseason. i know that we're still a month and a half away but look we are mired in the middle of a tough tough stretch for the orioles on the field so we got to look forward to something at some point down the stretch uh brendan let's dive right into that new top 100 because we got a lot to talk about here New top 100 drops, also the new top 30 uh, system ranking, so new 30 rankings, uh, top 30 guys in the Orioles' farm system. Let's start with the top 100. The Orioles have the same number of guys that they had before, but the names have changed. Uh, The big, obviously, start at the top, Adley Rutschman. Knew he wasn't going to get unseated. Still the number one prospect in baseball. And now Grayson Rodriguez becomes the consensus top pitching prospect In all of baseball, we saw him be number one in the Baseball America rankings. Now he gets the MLB Pipeline top pitching prospect.
1: Yeah, nice to have that consensus across the different platforms. And it really wasn't particularly close. The next highest pitching prospect on the MLB Pipeline rankings is Jack Leiter at 12. So Grayson Rodriguez putting a decent gap there, coming in at number eight. It's just really, I mean, to put it as simply as possible, it's really exciting. The Orioles have the best position player prospect in all of baseball and now have the best pitching prospect in all of baseball.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the MLB pipeline rankings typically rewards guys who are just consistently good year after year. So they're not going to put a Jack Lighter ahead of Grayson Rodriguez yet right. just because they've seen Grayson Rodriguez on a mound and he's been absolutely dominant. And he has been, after... Really, he's only had two bad starts since he's been called up to Bowie, and he's been there for several months now, and he continues to dominate. Probably going to be, at least you would think, starting 2022 at AAA Norfolk. Maybe even getting his feet wet in October in AAA Norfolk because the season goes long longer than the Bowie Baysox season at AA. Uh, But to have literally the top position player, the top pitcher, in all of baseball, I think, speaks to... We've talked about this system maybe not having the top-end talent that it should, but those two guys are clearly going to be the backbone of this rebuild.
1: Yeah, and it's impressive as well, and it's a testament to the development of Grayson Rodriguez. It's not like he was a top-three pick. He was the 11th overall pick by the Orioles, and he is way ahead of some guys that we've seen go in the top five, six, seven picks in recent years. Guys like Max Mayer, uh, Emerson Hancock, Asa Lacy he is far and beyond above where those guys are, and those were some top picks
0: in recent MLB drafts. Yeah, so he's developing right where he should be. The other pitching prospect in the top 100 for the Orioles did fall, however, and that's D.L. Hall. I think he was at 68-69 prior to these rankings coming out, and he falls down... To 78, And that, we think, has to be because of injury because nothing on the field would tell you he deserves to fall. I know he is still walking too many guys. That walk rate is still at like 4.5 per nine innings, but it's down from where it was when he was in 2019 with High A Frederick. So to me, that says it's just because he was limited to seven starts this year is probably done for the year. And they think, all right, you know, mostly a lost season for him. He's probably going to have to start out The 2022 season at AA Bowie, so he's going to fall a little bit in our eyes, but the potential is obviously still there.
1: Yeah, based on the seven games of performance, I really don't think there was anything that indicated that D.L. Hall should be dropping in these top 100 rankings. He was better. He took a step up. Right. He didn't take any steps back. And if we've seen him for the entire season, by now he's probably at AAA Norfolk. He's hopefully impressing at that level, and he's probably, if not staying where he was in the previous top 100, moving up a little bit. I would assume if he's continuing those great strikeout numbers and continuing to improve the walk numbers, the walks, like you said, really the only thing that you could look at as a potential reason that he might fall, but I think it's really just the injury, so really nothing to worry about when you look at the fact that D.L. Hall falls a little bit in these rankings.
0: Yeah, and then one guy who did slip entirely out of the top 100 rankings – I certainly expected it. I'm sure you did as well, Brendan. That would be Heston Kerstad, who obviously is entirely because of the missed time that he has had dealing uh, with his injury status, has not played at all this season and has barely gotten any baseball activity under his belt. At that point, even though the potential is still there, you definitely have to temper your expectations for this guy because a whole year without baseball at this point, we've now passed a year since the MLB draft. He wasn't even at the alternate site in Bowie in 2020. And just the missed time is going to set him back before you even get into what's he going to look like when he does come back.
1: Yeah, we've talked about Heston Kerstad a few times on this podcast. Not a ton of reason to take another deep dive into it when you're looking at the top 100. Really, the only reason he's not on this list is because it's impossible to project what he might give you on a baseball field because we don't know when or if he's going to return. So you can't really throw him in the top 100 prospects if you don't really even know when he might resume baseball activities. Yeah. So Heston Kerstad, we have the same mentality as we did before, which is that we just hope he gets better and anything he gives you on the baseball field is a plus. And you're just hoping for a healthy Heston Kerstad as far as the top 100. Really not that big of a deal. If he was healthy and playing, who knows where he might be.
0: Yeah, and the upsetment that you might have and the Orioles might have of of him kind of tumbling down some prospect rankings is mitigated somewhat by the fact that you're seeing some guys rise, most notably Gunnar Henderson, going up to number 80 in MLB Pipeline's top 100 prospect rankings. uh, And right behind him, three spots after the debut of Colton Couser in the top 100. So they end up with... Uh, five guys in the top 100 which is the same number that they had at this point last year it's just we've swapped out some guys um and honestly Gunnar Henderson continues to deserve to rise up the prospect rankings I know he has struggled in the a little little exposure that he's gotten to high a Aberdeen but come on he's he's getting challenged this is what you expect and honestly I think the Orioles are probably not too upset that he's struggling in in high a Aberdeen because it's forcing him to figure some things out no he should be struggling in Aberdeen at
1: this point because he is playing against guys that are three or four years older than him Yeah, he's 20 years old so there's no reason that Gunnar Henderson unless he was some kind of generational prospect there's no reason that Gunnar Henderson would have gone up to Aberdeen or and just really succeeded yeah right there's there's really no reason that he should have been able to do that at such a young age so this is the the development that we're expecting to see from Gunnar Henderson, the struggles are to be expected. I was a little surprised that we didn't see Jordan Westberg in the top 100. I think he might be somebody that's knocking on the door. I think as the season progresses and guys graduate, we could see him at some point soon because he's really impressed at the plate. And that was one of the things coming out of college that Jordan Westberg wasn't really known for. He wasn't really known for the bat as much. He was just kind of an all-around solid prospect. But, Maybe he's sneaking around, you know, the 105, something like that. He could get into that top 100 soon.
0: Yeah, I mean, you talk about Gunnar Henderson being younger than a lot of the guys, a lot of his, uh, you know, teammates and opponents in high A Aberdeen. Jordan Westberg is right around the age of some of his teammates and opponents, maybe even a little bit older in the high A spot. And that's why he is on his in his third new level on his third new team in the Orioles farm system in 2021, as he recently got promoted to double a buoy because he was hitting in the two nineties. He was getting on base. Uh, he had a little bit of pop good to see that Jordan Westberg, I I think that he may eventually be a top 100 prospect. Uh, I think that he, even though he just misses the cut to me, this is somewhat like not overreacting to when Ryan Mountcastle missed the top 100, right? We see it in the stats. We see it with our eyes. And to me, it's it's not a huge deal that he wasn't in the top 100 because I think he would have been 105, 106. He probably just missed the cut.
1: Yeah, and the top 100, you're projecting potential at that point. You're projecting a lot of ceilings. And Jordan Westberg is more of a high-floor prospect than he is a high-ceiling prospect. I think he still has a high ceiling, but when you look at Jordan Westberg and even his scout grades, pretty much everything is a 50, 55, 50, 55. He's just solid across the board, and because he's probably got that high-floor, little bit lower ceiling, that might be why we don't see him on the top 100, just because he doesn't have the crazy tools that could really, really project at the next level. Yeah. He's just more than likely going to project to be a solid MLB player.
0: Think of Jorge Mateo a few years ago uh, right. in the Yankees system uh, and even with the the Padres and the A's, a guy who had crazy tools but couldn't quite put it together. Right. Neil Diaz, another guy who was in the top 100, went back when he was in the Dodgers system because the tools are tantalizing, the ceiling is high, and they're just waiting to see hit, uh, how high that floor is going to be exactly. as well. So Jordan Westberg obviously lower... Ceiling, higher floor, but we expect him to be, I I expect him to hit well in double-A buoy and maybe even be in Norfolk in 2022. Um, All right, and then when we talk about the Orioles farm system, their top 30, uh, well, real quickly, Colton Cowser. he's the Orioles number five prospect. We saw some of his, the guys that were drafted around him also be put in the top 100, and this is kind of the pill that you have to swallow when you go under slot like they did on Colton Kowser and they got a guy for $1.2 million less than his projected slot value is you're going to see some guys who were drafted after Colton Kowser at number five ranked higher in the top 100 and it starts with Jordan Lawler at number 13
1: yeah Jordan Lawler at number 13 but then again the Diamondbacks probably don't have any other draft picks that are ranking terribly high in their top 30 whereas the Orioles they have Connor Norby check in at number nine and they've got Reed Trimble check in at number 21 yeah, and in their
0: top 30 in
1: their yeah. top 30 and hopefully as this class continues to play we just saw them down in Delmarva as they continue to play hopefully they will move into that Orioles top 30 so yes you're not getting the 13th prospect in baseball in jordan lawler but you are getting some more depth in the system
0: yeah it's it's uh, akin to they're hoping that something happens with Gunnar henderson who after he's drafted in the second round back in 2019 wasn't in the top 100 but he had a higher ceiling that went a little bit over slot for him and he could go higher up in the you know he could be a fast riser
1: yeah and we were debating whether we would see Colton Cowser or Gunnar Henderson higher on that top 100, yeah. where they would slot exactly in that Orioles top 30. And we saw just how closely those two prospects are ranked together. We saw Gunnar Henderson come in at number 80 on the MLB top 100 and Colton Cowser at number 83. Yeah. So those two are four and five in the Orioles system. You could probably put them... Either way, if you wanted to, just like in the MLB top 100, where they're pretty much right back to back.
0: Yeah. So let's shift to the, the Orioles top 30, because a huge riser is not Johnny riser, but his uh, teammate, Kyle Stowers in double A buoy center fielder gets called up to double A buoy. Absolutely mashes. Now he is in a slight um, expected, you know, slump, so to speak uh, with double A, but still pretty young. Uh, was drafted in the second round back in 2019, and he has shot into the Orioles' uh, top 11. He's number 11, and actually passes Usniel Diaz, who continues to tumble down prospect rankings. He, at some point, and part of that is due to the fact that they've been consistently adding talent, obviously. When he was the number one prospect in the Orioles' farm system, when he came over in the trade, they didn't have Adley Rutschman and Gunnar Henderson. Uh, So those guys obviously supplant him. However... Yusniel Diaz continues to fall down to number 12, and somebody who's performing really well, Kyle Stowers, takes his spot at number 11. Yeah, it's great to see from Kyle Stowers' perspective,
1: but from the perspective of looking at Yusniel Diaz, it is really discouraging to look at what he has done so far this season, dealing with injuries and all that stuff. Yusniel Diaz goes from somebody that we were really, really confident would debut for the Orioles this season to somebody that you're just kind of hoping is able to stay healthy and potentially put things together and potentially make a major league push at this point.
0: Yeah. Some other fallers as well. Zach Lowther falling all the way down to number 22, and that's a reflection of the struggles that he's had this year, both with injury and with production. We've talked about it before, but comes up, makes his MLB debut, struggles in a spot start against the Red Sox, and he struggled at AAA Norfolk as well. Uh, and he's now right next to Alexander Wells. And the gap between those guys used to be much larger. It used to be Zach Lowther right around the top 10, number 10, number 11, with Alexander Wells at number 22, 23. That gap has has shortened because uh, Lowther has fallen down the rankings and Wells. Because he's been okay in the major league experience he's gotten this year and just fine in A Norfolk has kept his spot.
1: And it's kind of interesting to see because going into the year, We were looking at the middle tier of these Orioles pitcher prospects and wondering who was going to separate themselves. You were kind of looking at the group of Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken, Mike Bauman, Zach Lowther, and Alexander Wells. And at least looking at the prospect rankings, a few guys have separated themselves. You've got Kyle Braddish, who we didn't really talk about all that much coming into the season. He shoots up all the way to number eight in the Orioles top 30. He's the third highest ranking Orioles pitcher prospect at this point behind Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall. And then, like you said, uh, we've got Mike Bauman at number 10. Zach Lowther does end up sliding to 22, but it's encouraging to see Mike Bauman continuing to pitch well. He's still at number 10 in the Orioles' top 30. And then Kevin Smith is pretty much staying where we thought he would be. So while Lowther and Wells have dropped off a little bit, we are starting to see some of those middle-of-the-pack Orioles pitching prospects separate themselves a little bit in the minor leagues.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of Mike Elias draft picks, if you notice, that have gone up in the Orioles' top 30. And you mentioned Connor Norby going at number 9 in the Orioles' farm system. Colton Kowser at number 5. We've also seen some other 2021 draft picks uh, go in the top, be slotted in the Orioles' top 30. Reed Trimble debuts at number 21, the outfielder. Uh, who was, what, a third or fourth round pick uh, this past, a month ago. Um, And one guy from a year ago that we saw taken in the fourth round, Kobe Mayo, up to number 17 in the Orioles farm system.
1: Yeah, Kobe Mayo is a really, really exciting prospect. We'll talk more about the trip that we took down to Delmarva to talk to some of those guys. Kobe Mayo is going to be a
0: dude. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, Kobe Mayo flies under the radar, obviously, because... He is taken in this shortened draft at a time when we don't have minor league baseball, so he, we don't even get eyes on him in 2020 at all. And here we are in 2021, and ye, to say that he can fly under the radar would be to disregard how absolutely massive this guy is <laughs> physically yeah. and how powerful he is. This guy has an incredibly high ceiling. Yeah, he's 6'5", 215
1: at 19 years old. He's a third baseman, and he looks pretty solid out there, at least from the one game that we saw. Obviously, that's an incredibly small sample size. But he looks like his footwork is decent, and he has an absolute cannon for an arm. Great arm. He made a play yesterday on a slow roller to third where he got to the ball late and still made the out because he has an absolute cannon. Yeah. And that's really encouraging to see. And it seems like every swing, you just think that ball's going out. Yeah, Because he has the power behind it, and he's able to get some loft on that ball. Kobe Mayo doesn't quite fit the mold of the michael Elias prospects that are you know, contact hitting college bats, but the power is really, really
0: exciting. Yeah, I mean, a fourth-round pick, and the Orioles clearly wanted to use the money that they had saved on Heston Kerstad at the beginning of that draft, and even Jordan Westberg, who signed right around his projected slot value. And they pushed that money into signing Kobe Mayo out of Stoneman Douglas High School for significantly over slot in the fourth round. Yeah, close
1: to $2 million they signed yeah. him for.
0: And obviously that's what you go under slot four is that you have that money. Now in 2021, the Orioles mostly used that money to sign the most draft picks that they possibly could in signing all 21 of their draft picks. But in 2020, obviously only six draft picks that they could have made. Uh, in a a five-round draft. So they said, let's go ahead and splurge on Kobe Mayo. And I get it. I understand now what was tantalizing about this guy. The tools are all there. And he hit very well in the Florida um, Complex League before he got called up with all these guys. So we got to see him along with Colton Kowser, Connor Norby, Reed Trimble, uh, Dante Williams, uh, John Rhodes, we got to interview, I mean, almost the entire roster yeah. for Delmarva Shorebirds. Uh, if you are in the the Delmarva area, the Salisbury area, I would definitely recommend going down and seeing these guys because the entire draft class pretty much got promoted together to low single A Delmarva from the, the Florida Complex League. They have moved as a unit. 15 guys and 12 draft picks get promoted to single A, and it's an entirely new roster for them.
1: Yeah, we saw the the first game that they were there, the lineup was entirely comprised of draft picks. Yeah. Of the 2021 draft, and then you throw Kobe Mayo in there as well, which is incredibly exciting. Yeah. If there, you know, if there was a minor league season last year, we probably would have seen something similar with the 2020 draft picks. It's so exciting to see pretty much this entire class move up together and hopefully succeed at this level. Mm-hmm. It was a really fun lineup because everybody that came up you were like, "Whoa, that's a high draft pick."
0: Yeah. Reed Trimble, Connor Norby, Colton Kowser, Kobe Mayo, Dante Williams, Ro- John Rhodes, Connor Pavloni, Jacob Teeter and Colin Burns. That was their lineup a couple nights ago. The the lowest drafted of those was a 13th rounder. The second lowest was a 7th rounder. Everybody else was either a 1 through 6 rounder. Yeah. Uh, between and Kobe May was the only guy who was taken in the 2020 draft. Everybody else was a 2021 draft pick. So that's great for us because it's easy for us to put faces to names and be able to put this draft class as a whole. But I was also impressed, Brendan, with how tight knit a group they already appear to be. Yeah, I was really impressed
1: talking with all of them. I mean, Colton Cowser, first and foremost, he just seems ready for this. He seems very composed. He's also a super nice guy. Yeah, I mean, before the game, he was like going down the line, signing autographs for everybody. The, the entire team was because yeah. they're all high draft picks that everybody wanted to see. But Colton Cowser just seems like built for this kind of thing. He seems to be able to handle the pressure of being that first overall draft choice very well. And I think he's going to really succeed as not only a player, but he clearly seems to already be a leader for this group of draft picks so
0: far yeah absolutely and it's funny to think that kobe mayo is the young guy of that group yeah. even though he was drafted a year ahead the only question marks for delmarva is going to be pitching because the orioles only took one pitcher carlos tavera in the first 10 rounds of the draft now we talked to carlos tavera i was very impressed yeah. with that conversation a guy who pitched at a couple different colleges and clearly has a great mindset a growth mindset, if you will, somebody who is very much looking for how analytics and the Orioles analytics systems can improve his game. Um, And they actually made a trip to the Wake Forest Biomechanics Lab uh, with Matt Blood, the director of player development. They took like four or five pitchers that they had drafted so that they have a good idea of how their pitching mechanics work and what they can do to improve themselves. Awesome stuff. I mean, really clearly high level stuff that, imagine three, four years ago, would never have happened in the Orioles system. But the question still remains, obviously, Carlos Tavera is a fifth-round pick. But beyond that, they don't have any top-tier talent taken in that 2021 draft in terms of pitching. Everybody else was a day-three pick. So they're just hoping they can hit on one or two of these guys. However, they may stumble out of the gate, considering, uh, pitching-wise, just considering these guys were not as highly drafted, not as highly... uh, regarded when they were taken right
1: which Michael Elias had again we we talked about it when the draft initially happened Michael Elias had the flexibility to do that because you already have the best pitching prospect in all of baseball in Grayson Rodriguez another top 100 pitching prospect in DL Hall and then some other really good pitching prospects mixed in as well with guys like Kyle Bradish Mike Bauman Zach Lowther Kevin Smith So you didn't need to take the first, second-round pitchers. You were able to get some more outfield depth and some middle infield depth. And while moving throughout the minor leagues, they might struggle a little bit in the wins and loss column because the pitchers aren't as good as maybe the top-end hitters that they drafted. We're not really looking at the wins and losses in the minor leagues at this point. We're just looking for player development. And if somebody like Carlos Tavera turns out to be even a middle-of-the-road pitcher for the Orioles if he comes in in a few years and we see him in the top 15 top
0: 20 prospects in the Orioles top 30 I think you would consider that a win I think you would too and they are probably the most exciting story maybe Adley Rutschman probably at triple a hitting his first triple a homer yesterday is probably the number one story when you talk about the Orioles farm system Grayson Rodriguez is probably the number two story when you talk about the Orioles farm system, and then these yeah. guys are probably third when you talk about exciting things coming down the pipeline. However, they are still a ways away from the big leagues. They are co- mostly college hitters, so the thinking is they can move up through the, f- the farm system a little bit faster than some high school hitters. However, they're still in low A. They still got to go to high A Aberdeen, then double A Bowie, then triple A Norfolk before they eventually make their way to Baltimore. And we've seen some struggles in the higher end, the closer end to Major League Baseball from some of the prospects in the farm system. And that's part of the reason that the Orioles are mired in another losing streak at this point is because we have seen these guys be great at single A, be great at high A, be great at double A, struggle a little bit in triple A, and then get to the big leagues and really hit fall on some hard times. And that, I think, can has contributed to the Orioles' tough season More than almost anything else. That's why they are where they are in a win-loss record right now is because of the failures uh, at the big league level of some of the better regarded prospects like a Zach Lowther and Alexander Wells, a Keegan Aiken, um, and then Neil Diaz and Ryland Bannon.
1: Yeah, I think that's maybe not the biggest story of the seasons, but at least when you're looking at From our perspective, the rebuild as a whole. We've tried to look at this Orioles team holistically. Obviously, the wins and losses for a single season do not matter nearly as much as what the Orioles are going to do three or four years from now, hopefully. But going into this year, we had a podcast that was called The Year of the Prospect because we were hoping that we would see Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken take jumps in the starting rotation. We were hoping that we would see the debuts of Mike Bauman, Zach Lowther, and Alexander Wells, and that they would succeed well enough that hopefully one or two of them would stick in the rotation for the remainder of the year, and then hopefully be a part of the rotation for the next few years going forward. We also talked about Yusniel Diaz and Ryland Bannon. We didn't sharpie them in as starters, but we were really confident that at some point in the middle of the season, we would see Yusniel Diaz join the Orioles' starting lineup consistently. We thought he could be somebody that could take over a starting outfield spot. And then Ryland Bannon was a bit of a higher floor, lower ceiling prospect, but we were hoping that Bannon would maybe take over for Michael Franco at some point in the year and be the Orioles, if not every day, third baseman, be a pretty consistent starting third baseman. And then you could maybe move him around to second or third, depending on what you would need from Ryland Bannon. Yeah. None of those guys have delivered on what we were hoping for this year. And it's discouraging when you're looking at, yes, the Orioles have the top prospects that are going to come up and hopefully succeed in a few years. But if you're not getting production from the more middle-of-the-road prospects, you need to win on the margins. You need to have those prospects come up and at the very least give you
0: depth, yeah. which uh, none of these guys are doing at this point. We were just hoping that some of them would flash. Right. And the problem is none of them have. We broke down the Orioles farm system into waves. We said wave one was going to be the group that included Ryan Mountcastle, Alexander Wells, Eusne diaz Rylan Bannon, all the, you know, that group of guys that know they're not one, two, three, four in the Orioles farm system, but they are hopefully going to be role players, at least, on the next Orioles playoff team. Right. They may not be the... Most valuable Orioles on those team teams, but hopefully they could be contributors. And we were just we weren't expecting too much. I don't think we had ridiculously no. high expectations. The only one we had
1: really high expectations for that disappointed us the most, I think we can agree, is Dean, Dean Kramer, Kramer. Yeah, because we were saying he has the stuff to be in the rotation. But even somebody like Keegan Aiken, yeah, we said
0: at the beginning of the year he's probably going to be in the bullpen. Our right. expectations weren't sky high. Right, but it, also Dean Kramer flashed in 2020, so that's right. partly why. But we were just hoping to see something like those first three starts that we got from Dean Kramer in his career in 2020. We were just hoping to see something like that from one of the group. From, you know, if it's not Zach Lowther, maybe it's Alexander Wells. If it's not Alexander Wells, maybe it's Mike Bauman. We haven't gotten it from anybody. That's the biggest issue here, is because is that... And there is still time left in the season. I don't want to act like the season's over now when we have six weeks left. However, we haven't gotten, we haven't seen nearly enough to be encouraged by what we've seen from the first wave of these prospects. And that's a, that's a major concern. And it's right. not just, we said on last week's podcast, it's not just that they were struggling at the big league level, because you can expect that from a certain standpoint, but it's that they're also struggling in triple A. It's that Yusniel Diaz is hitting 180 in AAA. Ryland Bannon has been on a hot streak recently, but he just fell out of the Orioles' top 30 in their rankings in MLB pipeline, and he's still hitting right around the Mendoza line. It's that Zach Lowther has an ERA in the eights. It's that they, he's fallen down to 22 in the Orioles' farm system ranking. So it that has been in, uh, discouraging as well. It's just not that they're struggling at the big league level, but... They can't even get out of Norfolk. Yeah, and the Orioles have been bailed out of
1: needing Yusniel Diaz this year at least because Cedric Mullins has turned into Cedric Mullins for some reason. And then you've got Austin Hayes who has stayed healthy for Austin Hayes, which is great. And then Anthony Santander we thought might play well enough to get traded that hasn't happened but Anthony Santander has picked things up in the second half so they haven't needed use Neil Diaz and Ryan McKenna has been ahead of schedule so Ryan McKenna has given you depth in that fourth outfield spot but especially the starting pitchers the Orioles could really use a just one guy a a good production out of Zach Lowther good production out of Alexander Wells or Mike Bauman if one of those guys had panned out at some point midway through the season that would be an immense help to this Orioles rotation that currently you can look at and say they probably have one major league piece going forward in yeah. John Means.
0: Yeah, and and he even he has fallen on some hard times as of late right. as well, and he's older than these guys. He's not 24, 25, he's 28. So he is, he should be good enough at this point to stick in a major league rotation and have the kind of ERA that he has right now. It's the rest of the guys. And I look back to a year ago when we saw... Dean Kramer, get off to a good start in his MLB career. Same with Keegan Aiken. We probably felt better about the state of the Orioles' farm system and rebuild. We thought that they were further along then than we feel they are now. Yeah, I would
1: agree because this year you have gotten some pleasant surprises. We thought Cedric Mullins was going to be a solid fourth outfielder that could come in and play great defense and center. Obviously, Cedric Mullins has turned into much more than that. We were pleasantly surprised with Tyler Wells, who has gone from Rule 5 draft pick to potential closer for the Orioles going forward. But outside of that, more players fall into the disappointment with how they've played this season than
0: the encouraging side. Yes. Um, However, I do think part of that can be blamed. Our perception, at least, of the Orioles farm system can be blamed on the fact that Right in the smack dab in the middle of their rebuild, which is based almost entirely around the draft, comes the shortest draft in MLB history in five rounds in 2020. And a time when they need to hit on a lot of these draft picks, they get stuck with only six draft picks, and then they get unlucky in that their first round draft pick from 2020 is not able to see the baseball field in the first year that he is drafted. So they... We're not able to add the amount of depth that they were hoping to and that's another big thing that they need in this farm system is depth that's that's why yeah. they signed all 21 guys in this 2021 mlb draft that's why they signed jd mundy as an undrafted free agent in last year's uh undrafted free agency period right after the draft but Going from 40 rounds to 5 rounds significantly limits the amount of depth you can add to a farm system. And I'm not trying to make excuses, but that has had a major factor on Michael Elias's ability to bolster the system that he has.
1: It has. At the same time, I think if you're looking at the draft as a whole and saying what rounds are we more than likely going to find guys that are going to be contributors at the major league level at least it is the first five rounds it is but typically typically but but you still need the depth and you can oftentimes find diamonds in the rough in the 11th 12th 20th round
0: it's not like the difference in an nfl draft between the seventh round pick and a first round pick right trey mancini would not have been taken in the draft that occurred in 2020 right he would have been off the uh, you know he would have been undrafted uh what round was Cedric Mullins in? I think a 13th round pick, he would not have been taken in the 2020 MLB draft. He would have been an undrafted free agent or he would have gone back to school. So a lot of these guys, it, you still do get productive players. It's you know, You're not going to hit on as many guys in the eighth round as you're going to hit on guys in the first round, but you still can get very productive players. And for a system that, because of their not using the international free agent market at all, because of their shoddy draft record under Dan Duquette in the later rounds especially they have not had that kind of depth and because of the trades that they had to make of course when they were a contending team in the AL East they had they need depth and Michael inherited a system that was very very low on talent at the back end and he had the night 2019 draft to bolster that and he used it very well we've seen you know Joey Ortiz a fourth round pick be good we've seen second rounder Kyle Stowers be good. We've seen some of the later round picks produce, and we're starting to see that in 2021. But the 2020 draft is another time when he could have bolstered the system and he didn't get a good enough opportunity. Yeah,
1: and it's definitely fair to say that that shortened draft in 2020 probably hurts the Orioles more than it hurts other teams around yes, baseball. Yes, yes, exactly. That are not in a massive rebuilding phase yeah. where you are overhauling the minor league system.
0: Yeah, it. it they were built around the draft. That's right. what this team is built for. Um, that being said, there are there is still time in this season for a lot of these guys to make up some ground. And I think that it, it is going to be a major offseason for a lot of these guys to figure out what went wrong in the 2021 season and how they can fix it going into 2022. Uh, that kind of transitions perfectly for us to talk about where the Orioles go from here. They currently have the... Worst record in baseball, as we sit here today, think by a game over the Arizona Diamondbacks. So they would get the number one pick in next year's draft, and obviously the draft is going to be a huge part of how they intend to add talent. But we, over the course of this season, have been critical, I think fairly so, of the organization's ability to add talent to the major league roster. They have been very... Hesitant to spend in free agency because they don't want to block guys. But now we're reaching a point where Mike Elias is entering his fourth season as GM. Fourth season? Yeah. Fourth yep. season as GM. And the Orioles need at some point to produce a better on-field product at the major league level. Yeah. Is this the time where you start to open up the checkbook just so you reach a base level of competence on the field?
1: I think it is, and I, I know we're on a little bit, two different mindsets here. I'm not saying break the bank, but I do think you need to open up the checkbook a little bit. I think that's a good way of putting it. Like I, I'm not running to the bank to sign Carlos Correa, but when you look at the Major League roster right now, and we are projecting again, Two or three years into the future when hopefully the Orioles' top prospects are at the Major League level and you've got a competitive baseball team. Right now, guys that I think have a solid chance of being on that team in a few years, Cedric Mullins, Ryan Mountcastle are locks. You've got Austin Hayes who, if not as a starting left fielder, I think will stay on the team as a depth outfield piece.
0: Yeah, his his floor, I think, right now, unless injuries, more he hits more injuries, is a fourth outfielder. Yeah, That's I think Austin floor.
1: Hayes sticks around in some capacity. John Means, I think, stays in the rotation for the next few years just because of the potential that he has flashed, even though he is a little bit older. And his, and his relative cheapness contract-wise. Right. Tyler Wells has a good chance to stick in the Orioles' bullpen, whether it's as a closer or a 7th-8th inning guy. Ideally, it's a 7th-8th inning. And then Tanner Scott... I think has enough potential to stick on this team for a few years, but he kind of falls more into the category of a fringe guy at the major league level that I think has a good chance to be here in a year or two, but not a great chance. I would throw Trey Mancini under that category just because we don't know if he is going to get extended. Jorge Mateo, because he has the potential as a former top prospect and, can play all over the field with the good depth. I think he has a chance. Ryan McKenna, I think, has a chance as a solid defensive outfield depth piece. Maybe Paul Fry yeah. can stick around in the bullpen. Maybe Bruce Zimmerman can stick around in the bullpen. And then maybe Ramona I think can those stick are as a depth piece, but those are further very fringe. fringe. Yes, very fringe. So as a whole, that's not a lot of players. No. That is not a lot of players that I feel confident... In saying they're going to be on the team in two or three years, which is why I would make the case for this offseason starting to open up the checkbook a little bit for free agents that I'm not saying six, seven year deal. I'm saying go out and try to find somebody that you can sign on a two or three year deal and give somewhere in the five to $10 million annual range. I think 10 is a little bit high, maybe five to eight. There aren't a ton of players that fall into that category... I think somebody like Chris Taylor would be a great addition, but he's probably going to be a little bit too expensive. Eduardo Escobar is another guy who can play multiple positions, but he just made an all-star team and is also 33. He might be a little expensive. Anthony Desclafani in the starting rotation would be a really good add for a two- or three-year deal. Christian Vasquez for some catcher depth. He's at least a starting major league catcher at this point. Jurickson Profar. And then another one that falls into that category pretty obviously, Trey Mancini is in terms of guys that you can add on a two or three year deal for at least a little bit more money than the one and a half million dollar contract that you gave to freddie galvis last offseason you've got to open it up a little bit
0: well i think when chris davis retired last week and his money got pushed into later years his salary for 2022 got spread out over the next three seasons so it's not a lump sum 17 million dollar payment in 2022 I think the natural reaction from a lot of fans was this will allow the Orioles to spend a little bit more for the 2022 season I don't know if that's necessarily the case I think that the Orioles without Chris Davis's contract obviously would be near the bottom of the MLB payrolls if not right at the bottom in yeah. terms of payrolls in the short term And I understand the idea of wanting to pay more just to get a baseline level of competency going forward. And I think the names that you threw out there, I think justifiably you can make a case for any one of those guys just to add them on a short-term deal. But the obvious impediments when it comes to signing free agents in the 2021-22 offseason is, one, you don't want to block prospects. That's the number one goal when you're in the middle of a rebuild. There's just no point in signing a guy to a deal where you expect, at a position where you expect a top prospect to come up and eventually lock down that spot. Sure. You hope that they will. And at the even if they don't, at least you gave them a shot to do so. And there's no point in, while you're in the middle of losing seasons and rebuilding, watching veterans play for $7 million when you could be watching a, who's 30 years old, when you could be watching a 23, four-year-old play for on his rookie deal and flash potential right and try to win a spot going forward to me that's the biggest thing and I think you obviously don't want to block to me I don't want to block anybody in the outfield I don't think there's any Cedric Mullins obviously you're not going to sign a, another center fielder to take his spot I want to continue to see what Austin Hayes has I want to continue to give him everyday starts in one of the corner outfield spots and then Anthony Santander, so long as he's on the roster, he first off, he needs to build back up his trade value if that's the intention of the Orioles is to trade him. He doesn't have much trade value at this point, and he's still 27 years old. So you need to give him everyday starts if, if you want to move him eventually. Right. So I don't see... And you have Ryan McKenna as your fourth outfielder who you could make a case, maybe should start, you know, every day. Yeah, I wouldn't, I
1: wouldn't season. sign an outfielder at this point. Yeah,
0: so outfield is out of the question. And then you have, obviously, guys like... Riser and Watson and that are going to be coming up through the system. Infield, I think, is a little bit trickier. I've, because I think first base, you're not going to sign a first baseman so long as you have Trey Mancini and Ryan Maucastle. But I I feel okay enough about the guys in the middle infield. You have four guys there in Jorge Mateo, Ramon Arias, Jamai Jones, and Richie Martin. The average age of those four guys is 25 and combined they have fewer than 300 major league games played. They are young and they are inexperienced, and that's what's costing the Orioles games at this point. The fact that they have a young and inexperienced middle infield. But if you get one or two of those guys to hit, you are on a great path to solidifying the middle of your infield on your next good teams. And you really sure. and the the only way you're going to find one of these guys being able to hit, the only way you can make sure that you have somebody who's going to be good is giving them an everyday spot in the infield on this team. If there's going to be anywhere that they're going to play, it's going to be in Baltimore every day. So there's no point in in delaying Richie Martin's progress another year and sticking him down in AAA Norfolk. There's no point in in not giving Jorge Mateo your recent waiver claim every day starts at, one, at either shortstop or second base. So to me, you it's worth seeing what one of what these four guys have because if you have something, then that guy costs one-tenth what a free agent would cost and he's going to be younger and you have him locked up for more years. Sure.
1: A few things. The guys that I threw out in Chris Taylor, Eduardo Escobar, and Profar, as kind of my personal wish list, all of them can play any position in the infield, okay. which I think yeah. would be valuable for the Orioles at this point because you could stick them at... Any position, they could be everyday players for you, but Eduardo Escobar could go from playing second one day if Jorge Mateo needs a day off to third to short. So that's kind of my personal wish list if you still want to give some of these younger guys more time at the major league level. And I do agree with that point to an extent. I agree with somebody more like Jorge Mateo, where he was once a top prospect, where Jorge Mateo has at least... Flashed for you here and there at the major league level so far because he has the ridiculous speed tool. And if you can get him to hit 230, he is probably a decent starter at second base for you. Or at least a bench piece. Or at least a bench piece. And I project Jorge Mateo, at least I'm hoping over the next few years, that he can stick around as a bench piece for the Orioles because I think he's valuable. Somebody like Richie Martin. I don't know how much more time the Orioles should give to somebody like Richie Martin. I do think he still has potential, but he really hasn't flashed so far at the Major League level. I know in 2019, he was way ahead of where he should have been levels-wise, and he should not have been an everyday starter. And this season, he's coming back from injury. He's still trying to come back a little bit. In terms of blocking prospects... I don't want to sign an outfielder that's going to block somebody like Ryan McKenna, who is a top, what, 10 prospect according to fan graphs for the Orioles. I'm not going to block a top 10 prospect at that point. But if you're talking about signing a shortstop or a third baseman, Ryland Bannon is outside of the Orioles' top 30, and the rest of the shortstop third base prospects aren't going to be at the major league level until like 2023. M- maybe. Maybe. Maybe, but also I would much rather have an issue of we have a bunch of good players and I want to see what we have with prospects and let's try to get them into the lineup as often as we can rather than the alternative problem of we don't really have anybody that can give you a solid everyday third base or a solid everyday shortstop. I'd rather have the opposite issue.
0: I I get that. I think that you may be underestimating the speed at which these guys can go up in the system. Jordan Westberg is in A. Yeah. with a month left in the season. What if he tears it up in A? He could, in theory, I don't know if it's going to happen, could, in theory, make his debut in 2022. In theory, Later I'm, in still, the season. I'm
1: still expecting
0: Jordan Westberg in 2023. Okay, but, but you're, if you sign one of these guys, odds are that a lot of the, those guys that you mentioned, odds are you're going to have to sign them for more than one year. Right. Because... The one-year deals are pretty much reserved for guys who are on prove-it contracts. And some of those guys you can find, guys that are coming back from injury, and you, know, you get them for one year because they're hoping to boost their value and then hit free agency again in a year and cash in. But it takes two to tango here as well when you talk about a lot of those guys that you mentioned. You're going to try to have to convince a free agent to come to the team that just had the worst record in baseball playing a spot that they know a prospect could come up and take my spot later on this year. I'm not going to be a long-term part of this plan. I don't know how much they're looking out for my best interest as opposed to they're looking at the guy behind me as the guy who's going to be the future face. And also, you're you're in a position where you very well could get dealt. And that can be attractive to some guys because they say, all right, I'm, I want to be on a winning team, so... If I'm good for the first couple months, like Freddie Galvis gets traded to the Phillies, he's in the middle of a division race, he gets a $250,000 trade kicker, he moves back to a city that he's known in the past, that works out for him. Other guys might say, I have a family. I don't want to be moving my entire family in late July, right before school starts, to a different city across the uh the country to be in the middle of a playoff race i would rather sign a two three year deal with a team that i know is going to be solid maybe they're not a world series contender but i can buy a house here settle my family i'm going to get a solid paycheck i'm not going to have to worry read trade rumors and see where i'm headed sure that can be more attractive to guys and a lot of guys want to win and if if you're convincing free agents to come to baltimore Right now, you don't have much track record of winning in the in the short term. So it takes two to tango, and if you have to overpay for that guy for that guy, you're probably going to have to to pay a little bit more for a guy like a Jerks and Profar who can go to a contender and get you know he he may not get a few million dollars more, but he's going to get winning. He might be in October baseball, whereas with the Orioles that doesn't seem too likely. So now you have to pay more. That's an extra factor there. It doesn't seem too likely
1: in the immediate short term, but if you're signing somebody for a three-year window, hopefully by the time they're in the second or third year of that deal, the Orioles are back to
0: playing somewhat competitive baseball. But you, you mentioned that, you know, three years, the guys that coming are coming up in Jordan Westbrook and Gunnar Henderson, those guys... If they debut in 2023, that's two years down the line. So now you're getting into a part where they are blocking somebody. Maybe they're not blocking somebody in 2022, but if you're signing a guy to a three-year deal, they're going to be blocking somebody at some point.
1: Sure, but again, if you're signing somebody that is versatile enough to play multiple positions, more than likely, not all of the Orioles' prospects are going to pan out at the Major League level. And more than likely, you're not going to need to start all of them at the Major League level. And at the very worst, if you sign... Well, at very worst, relatively speaking, say, for example, you signed an Eduardo Escobar to a three-year, $28 million deal. Mm-hmm. Eduardo Escobar is your everyday third baseman in 2022. And then in 2023, maybe Jordan Westberg comes up and at that point, he's shifted over to third. So Eduardo Escobar for the next two years is a slightly overpaid but still good player who you can put at third base if Westberg is playing shortstop at that point. You can put him at short if Westberg is playing third. Or if Gunnar Henderson is playing up, you could play Eduardo Escobar at second. Or he could be your go-to guy off the bench that you just figure out where he is going to play and you move him around when needed. But again, that becomes an issue of here are X, Y, and Z players that are quality players that I want to play every day at the major league level. That's a good problem to have versus right now the issue is who are we starting at third base every day?
0: Right. I And I get that. The other thing, however, to me is that 20, you said $28 million for three years. So you're paying about, you know, $9 million per season. Would that $9 million that you're spending in 2022 be better spent on a team that's probably still not going to make the postseason and is still going to be under 500? Then it would... In three years from now, when you have a contending team and you're looking for the final piece of the puzzle, or you're looking to extend Adley Rutschman or Grayson Rodriguez or one of these guys, that $9 million, I know it's not like you have the same amount of money every single season, but that $9 million does add up after a long time. And you are paying, ultimately, you're still paying a veteran to contribute to a team that's not really going anywhere in the short term? Would you rather spend $9 million to go from a 65-win team to a 68-win team? Or would you rather wait and spend that $9 million in three years to go from a 92-win team to a 95-win team? Because this division is going to be great every single season, and you have two Goliaths at the top in the Yankees and the Red Sox who can outspend anybody. They will always be able to outspend the Baltimore Orioles, unfortunately. The Orioles have to win on the margins, right? If, you mentioned it earlier with some of these top, pro, some of the middling prospects that aren't in the Orioles top thirty. They need those guys to hit because they need as many advantages as they possibly can. They need to load up that slingshot to knock down one of the Goliaths with as many rocks as possible. And that that, that might nine million dollars might seem inconsequential in the short term. It's nine million. It's it's not a huge deal. That could be a major deal in a few years if you're not able to re-sign an Adley Rutschman or if you're not able to sign the bench bat that you desperately need in order to get over the hump and finally get you into the postseason. They need to make sure that they have all of the weapons in their arsenal possible when they are good again because it is, even if all these guys somehow miraculously hit in the system, they're still going to need free agents and they're still going to take on salaries via trade. So they're going to have to use as much of that as possible when they're good. And to me, I would rather spend the money then to get over the hump than now just to be mediocre. Which I agree with,
1: but I think we're looking at it from a little bit of two different perspectives. You're looking at it from a single season perspective, saying it's not worth it for me to sign somebody to a $9 million deal if it's going to take the team from 62 wins to 65 wins versus it's more worth it. If somebody takes you from 95 to 98. Yeah. But what I'm saying and suggesting is that hopefully if you signed somebody to a three year deal, let's continue to use that Eduardo Escobar hypothetical for a three year, $28 million deal
0: for dragging you into this, Eduardo.
1: Sorry, Eduardo. If you're listening to this podcast, which you're not. Hopefully next year, if you sign Eduardo Escobar, sure. Maybe he brings you from a 62 win team to a 65 win team. But it's a three-year deal, so hopefully in the third year of that deal, he is also the bench bat that is bringing you from a 95-win team to a 98-win team. So I'm saying sign somebody to a three-year deal. Look at the Padres. It's a different example because you're not signing Eric Hosmer to a six-year deal. You're not signing Manny Machado to however many years he got. But it was the same kind of thinking where you go out and you get Eric Hosmer and Manny Machado, and for the first two years of their deal they're not contributing to a winning baseball team but over the next four years of their deal they are a part of a team that just called up a ton of prospects and they are now the solid veteran pieces that are surrounding the
0: prospect centerpieces like Fernando Tatis Jr. yeah but you you still spent money on them for the first couple of years of the, You you did. can still yeah. get that guy like you can still sign somebody of that ilk in three years what's the Russian doing it now?
1: Because you want, I I know it's a different scenario because the Orioles aren't going to sign a Carlos Correa for a six-year deal with the two years knowing that you're not going to be all that good. But then the final four, you're hoping for a playoff push. But it's the same kind of thinking where if I'm signing somebody to a three-year deal right now, if I'm the Baltimore Orioles right now, meaning this upcoming offseason, maybe you don't win a lot of games in 2022. But hopefully that guy you signed to a three-year deal, the guy that you wanted, contributes to more wins in 2023 and 2024, which I would argue makes that 2022 contract and the money that you paid him then, even though you weren't winning a lot of games, still worth it if he's contributing down the line. And you hope to get the veteran leadership. Which exactly. I think
0: I think is a, another big reason why the Padres signed in Eric Hosmer, why um, you know teams often spend before they actually show that they have... Winning pieces on the field because they want guys when these guys to make their debuts. They want veterans to look up to. Exactly. Um, so I understand it from that perspective. And I, you mentioned it earlier. I think the you could make a solid case that if you're going to be going out and spending that money regardless, the best guy that you could spend it on, it's Is already in house is Trey Mancini, is extending him. He checks every box, like we've talked about, being a veteran leader, being a guy that you can look up to, having a great story in addition to fan appeal, selling jerseys, all that good face-of-the-franchise type stuff. First baseman like Eric Hosmer, if you're going to go out and spend that money, might as well spend it on somebody that you already have. Yeah. That you already know what you have in him. So, to me, I think that's much more palatable than going out and bringing somebody into the organization, especially if you open up the checkbook and you sign somebody now and then you don't extend Trey Mancini. That's a worse look. I agree. You know, whether that guy outperforms Trey Mancini over the course of his contract or not, it's still not a great look to have a guy like Trey Mancini walk when you already go out and sign somebody. And again,
1: I'm not saying that the Orioles should be breaking the bank, but I don't think there's any reason that you can't, extend Trey Mancini two or three years while also signing a decent veteran to a two or three year deal I get that I think you can do both and I think you should do both it's going to be harder to get a starting pitcher a lot of people are saying that the Orioles need to sign starting pitchers the Orioles play at Camden Yards it's really hard to sign pitchers that want to play at a home run friendly ballpark but I think the Orioles should look at some veterans there again not for top dollar at this point. Somebody asked why the Orioles wouldn't
0: go out and sign Carlos Correa. Probably just doesn't make much sense so to at m- this point. To me, but I don't I don't want to like totally open this can of worms as we're 58 minutes into the podcast. But to me, like a Carlos Correa would almost be okay because that's a guy that's a franchise player that's legitimately great and is going to be very good. It's, that's true. it's the same thing as the Padres signing Manny Machado where it's like, okay, we're going to block Fernando Tatis In theory, at shortstop, eventually, obviously, Manny moved to third. Um, And we're not great right now, but this dude's 20... How old was he? 26 when he signed that contract? Yeah. Uh, 27, and we know he's going to be a dude for the most of his contract. So we're going to spend top dollar on him. I would almost rather the Orioles do that and they go, all right, we'll break the the (laughs) bank for Carlos Correa because... He's can play shortstop for us now, and then we'll figure out Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson down the line. Oh, I totally agree. I, I but that's because you're getting that quality of play. You're getting an annual All All Star every year, right? Whereas if you're going to be un- overpaying for a guy who's just okay in for three or four years, to me that doesn't that doesn't move the needle. I I agree.
1: My perspective on Correa is just that I don't think it's going to happen. So No, it's not going to happen. There's it, really not.
0: This is, this I, is I, I totally
1: th- agree. If the Orioles were able to sign Carlos Correa, I think it makes a ton of
0: sense. It's not going to happen. No, this is all a thought exercise. Too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that, it, you know, if you're going to, my thinking is, if you're going to spend a lot, if you're going to spend $30, $40 million, why not spend 150 Like Sure. if you, Because you need to get good players. Yeah, there's no point in yes. overpaying. But... Look, other teams have done it. Jason Worth with the Nationals a year before they were good. Uh you know, you mentioned Manny Machado. So it it happens. And Eric Hosmer. Uh I just don't know if this is also I don't know if this is the the offseason to do it. It could be next year. Yeah, eventually they will. And I do think eventually they should. It's eventually they have to because yeah. You
1: look at other teams around the league that are built on their prospects, they have other solid role players around them, like the Rays. Yes, yeah. they're built on Wander and Randy Orozarena, but they've also got guys like G-Man Choi and Brandon Lau. You need the other pieces yes. around the
0: centerpiece. And, and you also need to win some trades yes, as well, which we'll talk about, of course. We got an entire offseason to talk about exactly what the Orioles should do, but... In the midst of a 14 game losing streak, he got to look ahead just a little bit. Uh, thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. Really appreciate an extended episode, and we will, will of course, be back in a week. He's at Brendan Morty on Twitter. I'm at Paul Mancano on Twitter. Thanks, of course, to Bobby Blanco for running the show through an extended, prolonged episode. And thanks to you for commenting along. Shout out to Matt for commenting as well during our live show. If you don't watch on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter, you should. You're listening after the fact on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, all that good stuff as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. We will be back in a week, and we'll see you then.